I'm Pastor Zach. Shelly and I serve as uh, lead pastors here at Connection Point. So glad you're here today. Glad you're here for our missions conference. Good things that are, are coming up. You're going to hear this morning and, and ways to challenge us to the ends of the earth. Uh, I want you to be a part of all of those things as it relates to our missions conference. So tonight you'll have opportunity if you come back at 630 for a question and answer time with Dick and Jen on, on Main Street. And then uh, Wednesday night, our global prayer event, 6.30. This room is filled with floor maps as we pray for the nations. Every nation touched in prayer, so we'll love to see you come and be a part of that as well. And this morning, we have guests Dick and Jennifer Brogdon, and I know you'll be challenged by them today. And some of the history there is in 2005, Shelley and I were serving as teachers in the Chicago area, but we knew we wanted to go overseas one day, so every summer we spent our summers in Springfield, Missouri, working with a camp for kids that are global workers as they would come back to the U.S., then we would work with their kids and get to hear from them as well. And so then that summer of 2005, Dick came in and talked with Shelly and I and invited us to be a part of a school that he had started in Khartoum, Sudan. And we prayed about it and knew immediately God was in it and things have never been the same. <laughs> Dick and Jen invited us to be a part of their lives overseas. Uh, so you get to hear some, from some good friends this morning. And uh, I know that he'll capture your heart for the, the unreached, the nations. Uh, it was mentioned this morning, one of the things that we've installed, and we'll use it for our prayer night on Wednesday, is, is down the hallway over here in the prayer room. I encourage you after the service today, go down that hallway. It's a hallway that lists all of those who are unreached. And if you were here in January, I shared a message on fulfilling God's big dream. That's what we're talking about. God's dream is that one day all of those, that we get to all be around the throne together and singing his praises, every nation, every tongue, tribe. And so that's what we're talking about. We want to be a part of fulfilling God's big dream. In the first service this morning, as we were singing, one of the individuals in, in that service shared a scripture from Proverbs, and it gives good definition of what it is that we're about in missions. And it's from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 11. It says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. We're invited to be part of a rescue mission. And it was interesting with that scripture that was shared is before we came out to the first service this morning, we were in our office and Dick was sharing, he'd love to commission an artist that would be able to paint a picture of a couple or a team of people holding hands, holding back the masses from damnation. So it's just interesting that that was the word picture, that was a scripture that was shared. That's what we get to be part of. And so my heart for you today is that we as a body just even more strongly commit to being a part of that rescue mission in the world. Can we welcome Dick Brogdon this morning as he comes to share? Amen. Just out this door on my left, your right, there's a table. There's free information about Live Dead and missions. There's some books there. We sell them for 10 bucks, but if you don't have money, just take them. We want you to, to read that stuff and, and be blessed by it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to take our reflection out of verse 14 this morning. And we're going to unpack that verse clause by clause. But in order to understand the setting, the context for it, let's look at verse 1 of Matthew 24. And then we will proceed through to that verse, Matthew 24. Verse 1 says this, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, 
Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus has never been impressed with our buildings. He is more impressed with how many we send than by how many we seat. And when shown the temple and all of the big stones, he responds with a shrug that it's all going to fall apart, as will all the edifices and projects of men. And we know by the disciples' next question in verse 3 that chastened and redirected, they understood when Jesus said it's all going to be thrown down, he was in some way referring to that apocalyptic eschatology, that end times when the king comes back, And so they ask him, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, privately, saying, verse 3, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So Jesus proceeds to give them a list of signs. Verse 4, many will deceive. Second, wars and rumors of wars. Third, verse 7, nation will rise against nation. Verse 8, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, hurricanes in the Carolinas, and shootings in Pittsburgh. But these are just the beginning of sorrows. Martyrdoms, hated for Jesus' sake. Verse 9, conservative estimates are that since Jesus said this, 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last two millennia for Jesus' sake. Many offended. Verse 10, betraying, hating one another. Verse 11, false prophets much deceit. This happens even now. The, the, the prosperity, the, the sugar and medicine that's taught in many of our churches. Just one scandalous example. And verse 12, lawlessness and perversity abounding. How many despicable evils are even sanctioned by law today in our nation? And the love of many has grown confused, cowardly, and cold. And then verse 13, endurance itself Through all of these terrors is a sign because long-suffering is going to be required to make it to the end of the age. You can make an argument that everything I've just breezed through in those first 13 verses has already happened in history. The last one, you might say, I haven't suffered unimaginable things, but globally, men and women through the centuries have. And every single one of these things that we just talked about has happened. But then Jesus gives the culminate, definitive sign and our mandate. And that's where we want to dwell this morning. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So let's look at that clause by clause. This gospel. If we're going to summarize the gospel as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, we would probably say Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day. That is beautiful and pithy. But Paul wrote that decades after Jesus said this gospel. And Jesus said this gospel before he went to the cross, before he died, before he rose. Mark chapter 1 says the very first thing Jesus said when he appeared, he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Galatians 3 verse 8 says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And Romans chapter 1 verse 2, it says the gospel of God was promised through all the holy prophets in the scriptures. So if we're going to define the gospel, 
in the way that Jesus was using it when he first preached, when he mandated that that gospel be extended to all of the nations, what is that gospel? What did the prophets and the patriarchs understand? How would you explain the gospel if you couldn't use any New Testament lingo? If you couldn't say Jesus, if you couldn't say cross, if you couldn't say resurrection or anything churchy, what was that gospel that Jesus preached? For if we want the end to come, we better know that gospel well. The word gospel means good news. In order for good news to be good, there has to usually be some context of bad news. So the real question for us this morning is, what is the bad news that makes the good news so sweet? The definitive characteristic of God in the scriptures in the Old Testament included can be encapsulated like it is in Psalm 103 verse 8, that the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in compassion. Now when it says slow to anger, the modern mind has interpreted that, that God never gets angry, but that's not what the text says. Because he's merciful and gracious and abounding in compassion, he's very slow to get anger. But woe to the ones who are under the wrath of God when he does get angry. And the biblical reality, sobering as it is, and the bad news that we have to wrestle is, is because of your sin and my sin and repeated, incessant rebellion and arrogance, day after day and week after week and month after month and life after life and century after century and civilization after civilization, that great, loving, merciful, tender God has become wrathful, meaning he will destroy. He is so offended by our vileness that he will and by his character must destroy that which is wicked. Therefore, the good news about that bad news, the gospel that Jesus preached in love, is this. God saves us from God for God. That's why the old hymn state, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Or another hymn states, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Or the modern hymn, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Let me make a case for this because it's probably shocking to some from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 11, God says, I will bring a plague on Egypt and Pharaoh. About midnight, I will go into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt will die. In the next chapter, Exodus 12. For I, the Lord speaking, will pass through the land of Egypt. I will strike all the firstborn. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague will not be on you to destroy when I strike the land of Egypt. The Bible is shockingly clear. The people were not saved from Pharaoh. The people were not saved from Pharaoh's armies. The people weren't even saved from sin. Those that were under the blood, they were saved from the wrath of God. The Israelites were saved from God, 
by God, this is the heart of the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not primarily save us from the devil. Just as in Exodus, the Passover blood did not save them from Pharaoh. Jesus did not even primarily save us from sin, but the effect of sin, because it's not your adultery or your pornography or your lying that kills you. It is the eventual judgment of God on your sin that sends you to hell. For the gospel is simply this, that when Jesus died on the cross, he saved us from the wrath of God. For the love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the joys of God. Now, that in its didactic theological form, again, can be a little unsettling. So let me use narrative for those of you who appreciate the same truth through story. The tale is told of an African king who had a problem in his kingdom. A chicken thief was running wild. And the king decreed that when this chicken thief was caught, he would be lashed with ten strokes of an iron-laced whip that would lacerate his back. Chickens, however, continued to disappear. So the king, growing irritated, lifted the penalty to 50 strokes. More chickens were lost. The king, feeling mocked, raised the penalty to 75 strokes, and chickens were yet pilfered. And now the king, ticked off, full of wrath, set the punitive measure at 100 whips, a severity of punishment that even the strongest man probably wouldn't survive. And then the chicken thief was found. And to the surprise and dismay of all, not least the king, the chicken thief was the king's mother. So the kingdom was stunned. The king's word can't be broken, not even by the king, but justice being served, how could the man brutalize his own mother? What would the king do? Would he uphold judgment and scorn mercy? Would he be merciful and make a mockery of justice? In theology, we call this the divine dilemma. The day of reckoning came. The king sat sternly on his throne, and the chicken thief, the mom, was brought before him. Tie the thief to the whipping post, he ordered quietly. Give her all 100 strokes of the whip at full strength. And he cautioned the executioners that if you don't do that, it's at the cost of your own life. The crowd was astonished as the thief, the king's mother, was tied to the stake. One more thing, the king commanded softly. He stood, removed his royal robe, stepped down off the throne, and walked over to his mother, wrapped his arms around her, held her tight, completely shielded her body, lovingly laid his head on hers, looked directly at the executioners, and said, Now, as he held on to his mother, beat the thief. And the king, by his own decree, took that deadly beating for his mother. And that's the gospel, that the king of all creation stepped off that heavenly throne, down into the muck and mire of this world, into the brokenness of your situation, and there you and I stood and stand, guilty and vile and rebellious. He wraps his arms around us, and he took the wrath of God for us, because 
the love of God saves us from the wrath of God that we might enjoy the beauties of God. This gospel, next phrase, of the kingdom. In Mark 1, when Jesus begins to preach in our Matthew text, the gospel is referred to as the gospel of the kingdom. For there is no gospel without the king, the eternal king who comes down to save. This is why, importantly, the gospel must the gospel requires the belief and the confession and the submission that Jesus is God for Jesus the name literally means Jehovah is the one who saves and as we've noted the gospel requires God the king coming down off the throne to save us and that's why I reject Islam in denying the deity of Jesus Islam denies salvation to 1.7 billion people and what can be more cruel of an ideology that it denies salvation to its very own you see Jesus came into what's called the second temple period and the Old Testament lesson was that patriarchs and judges Kings and prophets, they all failed. The only hope was when Messiah comes. First century Jews, they understood the lesson of exile. Man, including the chosen people, has only made a mess of things. We can't lead or govern without corruption or tweeting. We can't follow without rebellion. Any righteousness, public or private, is short-lived. We are cursed by internal and external sin. And the only hope is when God comes down to save. The only hope is when Messiah comes. The only hope is when Shiloh comes when the king of all the earth returns in glory and power and destroys all that is evil and recreates all that is good that is the blessed hope that the Bible talks about and on that great and terrible day the Bible says there will be a resurrection of all the dead and all the living and all the dead will be stood before a final judgment seat and heaven and hell are at stake because the gospel of the kingdom implies that the king is coming back and there's a sword in his hand and there's fire in his eyes and his robe is dipped in blood and when the king comes it would be wise to be found loyal not just wise it's a matter of life and death because only those under the blood of the Passover lamb enjoy the joys of God forever I have two beloved sons and one revered mother, all who are loyal to the king. My mother begins each day praying for her two grandsons. In her mind's eye and in the spirit of her prayer, she takes the hand of Luke and the hand of Zach and she marches them to the throne of grace. And there she leads them all in bowing before King Jesus. It's a prayer of submission. It's a declaration that there's one king and our lives are in his hands. His to command, ours to obey. And in my heart, in the spirit of my prayer with my wife Jennifer, we too try and march our hearts to the cross every morning and there we bow and say, Jesus, you are my king. You are the savior of the world. You have all the rights we have none. It's yours to command and it's ours to obey.
For the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. We don't like that verb preaching anymore. It can open us to charges of hypocrisy. Yet the gospel has ever gone forth by preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It has pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Preaching fixes the efficacy solely on what God has done. You see, preaching removes any doubt as to where our hope or power is sourced. It is not in man. It is not in social programs. It is not in projects. It's not in you. It's not in me. God, through Christ, is the power of the gospel. And faith still comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so, to paraphrase paraphrase Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified to the Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist, a stumbling block. And to the secular humanist, foolishness. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now let me be crystal clear. Preaching is not confined to this pulpit and this room or this space. Nor does it primarily issue forth from pulpits like these. No, preaching biblically is the verbal proclamation of all of God's people in the marketplace, in your living room, in the cafes, in the restaurants, around a neighborhood bonfire, in buses, in trains, in the street, in the park, in the campuses, through the corridors of power, through art and music and dance and drama and video and writing, through every medium, through every personality, through every gifting, preaching is incumbent on all God's people. You are called and commanded to preach. You have been instructed to open your mouth and present the beauties of the king. This is not my job. This is our job. And our role is so biblically crystal clear. We are messengers. We are town criers. We are heralds. We are voices in the wilderness. And we are not the king. We just point to the king who comes in glory. And this is why spirit filling in the Bible is always affecting our speech. Old Testament prophets and New Testament priests from Zacharias to Mary to Elizabeth to John to Jesus to Stephen to Peter and Paul and the Spirit outpoured at Pentecost. When Jesus becomes so real to us, the fire of heaven is kindled within and we are so enraptured with Jesus we cannot contain him. It's like a fire within our bones and our mouths have to open and vent to the world the majesty that has been unleashed within the fire, the love, the wisdom, the truth. It's not of us. We have encountered God most high. The presence of God has consumed our thoughts and our emotions and our feelings. And God is so big and he's so beautiful. We can't hold him within. We have to express him to the world. The wonder of Jesus cannot be contained in these vessels of clay. It has to emerge from us. And if you are struggling to testify and preach and announce the beauties of Jesus is, forgive me, but you haven't really met him yet. 
He is so magnificent. Jesus is so wonderful that to really encounter him, you've got to talk about it. This is the biblical record. And we say with Jesus in Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach. I must preach the kingdom of God in other cities also. For this purpose, I have been sent. And with Paul, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And so all of us, we must stand in the marketplace and lift our voice over the bad news of our times and proclaim from the rooftops through every creative medium. There's hope. There's healing. There's freedom. There's life. The blood has been shed. The debt has been paid. God came down and saved us from God for God. Oh, hallelujah. This gospel must be preached. Now, as is normal, every obedience comes with a price tag. And Jennifer and I have noticed and the Maddoxes have experienced that in the Muslim world, if you serve through education or literacy or clean water or feeding programs, a number of other social services, the Muslims love us. But when we preach the gospel of the kingdom, they don't like us quite so much. It's not that different for you. You serve socially, people will respect you and call you wonderful. You open up your mouth and preach the gospel of the kingdom even in this society and they call you a bigot and accuse you of hate speech. And it's only going to get worse. You see, if our goal is to be universally loved, we have not understood the gospel. Matthew 24 verse 9 says, Jesus speaking, you're going to be hated. The goal is not to be loved. And if you think it is, you haven't understood the consequences of the gospel. And even more tragic, you haven't understood love itself. Because the most loving thing that we can do is open up our mouths and preach the gospel of the kingdom. So tomorrow morning, when you and your family, through your prayers, approach the throne of grace, the king has told you to preach. The world has commanded you to be silent. To whom are you going to bow? I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world to all the nations. The global population now exceeds 7 billion people. 42% of that 7 billion are concentrated in the 7,000 plus unreached people groups that are now etched on that wall. And that word nations in the Greek is ethne. It doesn't mean geopolitical states, but families, clans, cultures, ethno-linguistic peoples of all races. And these unreached, these 42% of the world and 7,000 plus unreached peoples are 3.15 billion who have never heard the gospel, who do not have adequate witness of the king. And yes, there are lost in our decaying inner cities. And there are lost in the greedy corporate world. 
And there are lost in our outwardly idyllic suburbs that inwardly are full of vice and depression. And yes, there are lost on our secular campuses. And yes, indeed, Lafayette is part of all the world. But the assertion of this text is not that the here is being neglected, but that the there, the all the rest of the world, is at a disadvantage. Do not join your voice to the swelling ranks of those who so ethnocentrically reinterpret the scriptures to say that we must give primary attention to those who are close to our home. When Jesus commissioned his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, let me remind you of the inconvenient truth that none of the disciples were from Jerusalem and none of the disciples were from Judea and none of the disciples were from Samaria and none of them for the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus was not telling them to stay home. He was telling them to leave home. He was telling them to go. He was to tell Telling them to lift up their eyes to all the places and all the regions where the gospel had not gone. Because the near is assumed, and yes, it is important, but it is the far that Jesus is urging. This gospel, it must, it shall be preached in all the world amongst every unreached people group. That's the heart of this text. Because when it comes to allotment of resources... It's always the far that suffers. Still today, globally, 97% of missions giving goes to those ministries, valuable as they are, that are near to, to home, or to those ministries that already serve Christians. 97%. And only 3% of our missions giving goes to those 3.15 billion represented in 7,000 people groups, 42% of the world, on the wall out there. And last year, Americans spent more on bubblegum and dog food than they did on global missions. So please understand me. I am not saying that we are irresponsible for those who are lost near to us. We must impact this community. Here's all I'm saying. If 42% of the world has never had access to the gospel... Shouldn't minimally 42% of our funds and our prayers and our people go there? For this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world to all the nations as a witness. That word witness is translated from the Greek word martus, which is where we get our word martyr. Biblically, to be a witness is to be a martyr, whether through your life or by your death. And the gospel has ever been preached and gone forth both in joy and in weeping. Men and women through the years have always suffered for the dissemination of the gospel. One of my favorite recent stories is a plucky Roman named Lawrence. The year was 258 AD. The emperor was Valerian. He wanted to confiscate the wealth of the church. He arrested Sixtus II who is the bishop in Rome, as he's been marched to his execution, Lawrence called out to the bishop and said, My father, are you leaving me so soon to go to heaven? And Sixtus replied to Lawrence, Don't worry, my son, you'll be with me in three days. Lawrence was arrested. 
And the emperor demanded the resources, the treasures of the church. So Lawrence said, give me three days and I'll bring them. He went home. Whatever little money the church had, he dispersed. And then he gathered all of the widows and he gathered all of the orphans and he brought them before Emperor Valerian. And he said, here are the treasures of the church. Well, the emperor wasn't impressed. And so he had Valerian executed and they chained him to a gridiron and they built a fire underneath that gridiron and they began to roast him alive. And in the midst of that agony, I imagine it with a smile, Lawrence addressed his persecutors and he said to them, you may turn me over now. I'm done on this side. <laughs> and then with his last breath, he prayed for the people of Rome. One of the people groups on your wall is the Sheikh people in Bangladesh, 165 million. One of the top five largest unreached people groups in the world. And I just recently came across a news story of a, a believer in Bangladesh. He came out of Islam and so they abducted him, they tortured him so he would recant his faith. He wouldn't. So they kidnapped his young son and began to cut pieces of his young son's body off of him so that the father would recant, but he never did. Maybe you've seen the news out of Egypt the last few years where Islamic fundamentalists have been bombing Coptic churches. A TV reporter went to interview one of the widows and on national, in fact, internationally broadcast television. She said, not only do I forgive the ones who killed my husband, made my children orphans and made me a widow, I love them because of Jesus. And the Muslim interviewer, he couldn't believe what he was hearing. He put his hands on his head and he said demonstrably, I would never, I could never forgive those who killed my own family. These Christians, he said, are made of a different substance. These Christians are made of steel. What is it about the martyrs, Lawrence, and this brave father in Bangladesh and this wonderful widow in Egypt, that on the day of their great agony, with great humor or great grace, they can testify to the love and the hope that we have in Jesus. What is it in the saints through the ages who for multiple years have died and given testimony so faithfully? I'm afraid on my day of testing, if I would come to something that dramatic, I'd squeal like a stuck pig or deny my faith or make up some rationalization so they'd stop hurting my son. But what was it? What is the steel and the grace in these men and women, young and old of every nation, that over and over and again have borne testimony, have witnessed, have been martyred because of Jesus? And I've come to the conclusion that the only way to die well under duress is if we die daily, discreetly, when no one sees and no one knows. If day after day we say yes to the king and no to the flesh, and yes to the king and no to indulgence, and yes to the king and no to laziness, and yes to the king and no to lust, and yes to the king and no to rebellion, and yes to the king and no to all the other carnal things that course through our veins. If day after day after day after day we've been living the crucified life, and if we have been dying daily, there will come a day when we realize our dying is about to be over, and that day, whatever it holds for us, is merely the last installment on our dying, and we recognize that our living is about to begin. And who doesn't want to live forevermore?
with no curse and no death and no pain. Let our joy on that day come from the realization that death and dying and sin is over and life from here is unending. Because this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world amongst every unreached people group as a witness and then the end will come. When I was a little kid and Zach and Shelley both grew up in pastors' homes. They probably know it, and some of you old-timers. We were used to sing a chorus. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. It was the dark days of the Battle of Britain all seemed lost and politician named Winston Churchill went on the radio and he addressed the British public and he said this is not the end it's not even the beginning of the end it's just the end of the beginning I am a missionary because I want to see the end of the beginning and I want to go home this world's not my home the Bible says we're pilgrims, we're strangers, we're aliens. We, we don't belong here. I am so weary of the filth and the corruption and the wickedness all around me. I'm tired of the death and sickness and crying and night and sin. But it's not really the sin out there, vile as it is, that's the most disturbing. I'm tired of the sin within. I know what's in here. I know what I struggle with. I know I'm redeemed. I know I'm going to heaven. I groan with Paul as he did in Romans. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. But I know that's out there. And right now in my daily living, I go back to the same sins like a stupid dog to foolish vomit. And I struggle with the same insecurities and brokenness and arrogances and lusts and pride and all the same things that course through your mind and heart and soul as well. And I am tired of that. And I want to be free from that. And I want to be in the presence of Jesus where I'm no longer blistered by this infernal character of fallen sin. And when there's no more night and no more death and no more curse and no more evil out there or in there with the whole creation, I long for the liberation of the sons and daughters of men I want to be with Christ like Paul said I don't know what he's going to choose for me but I know this to live is Christ to die is gain and to be with Christ is far better Christmas is coming I've always loved Christmas and our family tradition was that early on Christmas morning we would open our presents and so in the weeks and days before Christmas we'd buy gifts for one another we'd wrap them We'd arrange them under the tree. My sisters would put them in piles, make sure everybody had equal gifts, and we'd shake them and try and figure out what the gifts were. And that anticipation would rise as we got closer and closer to Christmas morning. Now, if on Christmas morning, my father would have emerged from his bedchamber and said to my siblings and I, and these dishes of the kitchen will be washed and all the tables cleared as a witness and then we'll open our presents, what do you think I would have done? 
I had to run on those little legs to the kitchen. I had to grab my sisters, whether they wanted to wash dishes or not. Let's get to the kitchen. Let's clear these tables. Let's get this thing done as a witness. And then we'll get to open our presents. The great gift of eternal life, the joys of God forever and ever in the presence of Jesus. No devil, no sin, no wickedness, no death, no night. It is out there waiting for us to open. And all we have to do is wash the Father's dishes. So what are you waiting for? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world amongst every unreached people as a witness. And then we open our present. The end will come and we go home. Have you forgotten that you are a stranger, a pilgrim, an alien? Have you forgotten where home is? The king stands amongst us this morning and he does not stand cap in hand begging. The king gives commands. The gospels all end and Acts begins with this commission to go make disciples of all peoples. Why have you not obeyed the clear black and white instructions of Jesus? Do you have from him overriding orders to stay? On what authority do you stay when you have been so clearly, so many times, commanded to go? We agonize over whether we are called. But it's so clear. We should be agonizing over whether we were called to stay. Because otherwise, if you don't have a clear conviction, which is completely legitimate, there's an example right there of being called to address the issues in the church and raise up a missionary movement. If you don't have the clarity of that call, Jesus told you to go, so what are you waiting for? I find it troubling that certain posts have no trouble being filled. Medium to large churches, when vacant, always have applications. When the positions of a district superintendent or a college president or a CEO or professorship come open, those vacancies are never open long. And I'm not denigrating their importance. I'm just saying that there are long lines of applicants to jobs and positions and ministries here at home and nobody's standing in line to go to the unreached. Why is it a joy to be considered for a leadership role in America and a cross to consider leading the unreached to Jesus? Why the long lines to serve at home and so few surge to the unreached far away? Is it ignorance? Is it cowardice? Is it inconvenience? Is it the immediate attention of being chosen and recognized in the here and now, trumping the hard work of going to the backside of deserts and the far sides of mountains? And is it possible that the return of the king is retarded because too many of us linger at our false home? Jesus commanded us to go. On what authority do you stay? Close your eyes and bow your heads.
If the Holy Spirit today is invigorating you, reminding you, compelling you, not because of guilt, but because Jesus, as we sang, is worth it, that he's worthy of it all. And by that sweet Holy Spirit invitation, linked with that strong command of the King, if you are sensing in your spirit right now that Jesus is asking for a radical response, that you would pray for the unreached in ways you've never prayed, that you would give financially for the global glory of Jesus in ways that you have not yet given, or if you would leave this home and what you know and with family go to the uttermost parts of the world to make Jesus famous where he's never been preached. If there is some sense in your heart right now that the Holy Spirit is leading you to a greater, more radical level to be engaged in the gospel being preached in all the world amongst every unreached people as a witness so that the end would come. Whatever that would mean. You don't even have to know what it means. You just want to say yes to the king. If that's true for you, would you just stand up right now? You want to say yes to the king. You're not predeciding what that means. You're just saying yes to the glory of Jesus amongst all peoples. Those who are standing, would you come to the altars? Just come and stand quietly at the altars. Those where you're sitting, would you make that an altar with your eyes closed, your head bowed? We are going to make this a sacred moment without any music or fanfare. And I just want us to ask, Jesus, how do you want me to respond? Through prayer, through finances, or through going. Speak to me now, Holy Spirit, commander of angel armies, Lord of all. What do you want me to do, and how do you want me to respond? Let's just linger for a moment and let the Holy Spirit speak. God, I pray, as we've been challenged this morning, to be a part of fulfilling your big dream. Jesus, impress upon each one of our hearts our individual, our personal calling to that, Lord. Whether it be that we go, that we go serve in, in teams and reach the unreached. Whether we pray, pray daily, pr pray diligently for those that are going. And pray, Lord, for those people groups who are unreached. Lord, whether, whether we give and we resource those who are going and, and those things which they're setting up to do. God, I, I pray that we would all respond according to your great global purpose. Lead us today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.
for the group that's uh, in particular that's standing up here this morning, if as Dick was sharing, part of your heart was, was an understanding that you might be called to go. So Shelly and I, we did that. So for 10 years, we were going to Sudan, we went to East Jerusalem, and we knew that that's what God was leading us to do. And if that's what God is dropping in your heart today, if I could encourage you, please shoot me an email, find me after service. We want to point you in the right direction. We should all have a heart of radical followership in Jesus because we should all have a longing to go home. Dick, he, he asked me as we were driving, and I picked him up from the airport Friday night. He said, so do you feel at home? And I said, no, thanks, you've wrecked me. <laughs> Nowhere is home anymore. But that's an okay thing, and I actually consider that a blessing. Are we happy here? Absolutely, but I'm not home yet. And so I just pray that becomes the longing of your heart to say, oh, Jesus, help us go home. And that happens as we start sending people to those groups on that wall, and we start crossing off names to say, Jesus, we're completing the task you set before us. And some of you get to be a part of that. So I just, I encourage you, don't let the enemy take that from you to say, ah, you just responded. But may it be, oh Lord, help me go. And we can steer you in the right direction. So please email me. You can find me on the church website. Uh, we'll go get together, uh, we'll grab a coffee, and we'll talk about where do you go from here and take those steps of faith. Um, but what an awesome thing. It's, you, you won't be disappointed as you adventure in Jesus. God will lead us and he will show you more of himself in you. I'm going to invite you to go find your seats this morning if you responded this morning. But could we thank Dick for sharing today? As you came in today, one of the things we have at Connection Point is a missions council. We want to invite you to personally be invested in those people that we have sent and are partnering with. So there's a wall that when you came in today, it represents papers of all of the different global partners that we have around the world in different regions. And so we would love to invite you to be a, a church liaison. It's, it's not a financial commitment. It's a prayer commitment. It's a relational commitment. And so we want our people that serve overseas like Dick and Jen, we want them to have representatives here to say, we are praying for you this week. How can we be praying for you? What is God doing as you go out and serve in the field? So we'd love to have you a part of that. We'd love to see every one of those papers gone by the time we leave today. So what that looks like, the commitment is, as a missions council member, is that you're going to commit to regularly pray for those people, that you're going to stay in communication with them. And this is just a year-long commitment that we kick off at missions conference, and then we go through July in our missions weekends. But you're just saying, for a year, I'll stay committed and connected with one of our global partners around the world. And uh, so one of the other things is we get together five nights in the year. One of those is this coming Wednesday for a global prayer event. So you're saying, I will come to that. I will pray for the nations. I'll pray for the worker that, that I'm connected with. And then I'll meet with our region to say, hey, here's what's going on in the lives of the Brogdons. Can we pray for them in this way as a group as well? So that you would attend those, those global prayer events. And I think I'm missing one of those things. Uh, and read a book. So we always want to inform you in missions. How can we do a better job in missions? So we read a book together every year. So that's what that commitment looks like. If you take a paper, that's what you're saying yes to. And we want to invite you to be a part of that. So I encourage you to do that. The other thing, well, how do we also get involved in missions and resource missions financially? When you came in in your programs, there was a Kingdom Builders Commitment Card. And we have opportunity to turn those in today. So as you want to resource the kingdom and get behind different projects, that's a great way for you to do that. Because we're going to put some funds behind, some dollars behind. We don't want to be a church that commits 97% of resources not to the unreached. 
We're committed to being a church that has a lot greater percentage going out the door to reach the people on the wall out there. We're committed to it. And we're going to keep going after that. Last year, $50,000 to help plant the church in Iraq. We are committed to seeing dollars go to unreached peoples. And you're a part of that as you're a part of Kingdom Builders. I'm going to invite our floor host to come. You're invited to put those cards, the Kingdom Builder cards, in that offering bucket as it goes by. But the offering we're taking right now goes specifically to Dick and Jen. And so we want to invite you to invest in them. So where are they headed from here? So they started a movement, Live Dead. If you've uh, read, read through the Live Dead Joy, you know what that is. It's about planning churches among unreached peoples in teams. And so they were behind that strategy. And now what they're looking to do is they say, you know what? Our heart is for the lost. We want to continue to pioneer. So this offering is helping to send them to Saudi Arabia. That's where they're headed. Could we get behind them as they go to Saudi Arabia? Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? You get to be a part of planting the church where it doesn't exist. And so we want to be a part of seeing the church and the unreached reached in Saudi. And so that's everything given in the offering today goes to that endeavor. If you're giving online, the, the slot for guest speaker goes exactly to them. But we just want you to be a part in finances and prayer. And we'd love to see you go. And, and our heart is to be a sending church. When I, I came, we have this symbol for the church. And it looks like there's a, uh, and I asked, what's the definition of that? And I got, you know, not different answers. And I said, well, here's what I see that as. If you look at our church symbol, it's taking people in. You can see it on your offering envelope and we're sending them back out the door. Our heart is to help you to connect with Christ, to equip you to then go on mission for him. So that's what we want to see happen. May you be a part of that. Jesus, we just pray over this offering. We just ask that its influence, its effect would be multiplied greatly. God, I just pray that you'd bless these gifts as they're given. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have a heart to resource those who are going to the unreached. Help us get behind those endeavors which are helping us to cross names off that list. Lord, that your glory might be known among the nations. Jesus, you truly are worthy. You're worthy of it all. We sang it this morning. So God, I pray that we would live lives that are worthy of the calling that you have upon them. Jesus, I pray that as we close in song that we would commit ourselves to you in ever-deepening ways in prayer. May we pray for the unreached. Lord, in giving, may we help resource those endeavors going to the unreached. And Lord, as you put it upon our heart, may we in boldness and great bravery by your spirit go and be a part of what you're doing on front lines. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As that offering bucket passes you by this morning, we just invite you to stand as we close in song today.